Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you're in. Now here's Pastor Kevin. Boys first love mom. And mom's last great love of her life is her son. And talks about just... He, he talks about his mom who had just passed away. It's just a couple of minutes. And um, how he became the person that he is uh, because of the confidence instilled in him because of the love of his mother. And that's what I want to talk with you about this morning. So just so you know, as far as I know, I've never preached a Mother's Day sermon on Mother's Day. It just seems so corny to me. And I, I just don't think I've ever done it. And, um, but I was praying and, um, the Lord really put something on my heart for mothers this morning. So if you're not a mother, if you're a father, you're still going to get something out of this because these same things apply for fathers, but they really especially apply for mothers. And I'm going to look at the life of Sarah just a little bit and another mother in scripture named Hannah. But before I do, I want to just read some scriptures to you. In Judges 5-7, there's a verse out of the song that Deborah sang. And the Bible doesn't tell us anything about Deborah having her own kids. Maybe she did, maybe she didn't. Probably she did, but the Bible doesn't tell us about that. But the Bible tells us that she became a mother for all of Israel. And in her song, she sings, Until I, Deborah, arose, until I arose a mother in Israel. And she's singing about the victory that God gave to Israel. And it's really a meaningful verse because it's true that there's no victory, there's no power in a person's life without the love of a mother. If you're sitting there today and in one of those rare cases, probably a lot of cases where kids grew up without a dad, but in those rare cases where you grew up without a mother, I just want to say this right out, that you have a mother in the church. You had a mother somewhere in your life or you wouldn't be here today, even if it's not your, your birth mother. So we're not talking just about biological mothers here. But Deborah arose as a mother for Israel and it brought victory to Israel in her darkest hour. And then in Luke chapter 2, Simeon says to Mary, the mother of Jesus, when she comes to dedicate her son at the temple, and he's a baby, and he speaks to her these words, a sword will pierce even to your own soul, to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. To be a mother means that a sword pierces to your own soul, so that you give your life for the life of your children. And then as Jesus is on the cross in John chapter 19, kind of as the other bookend to this story about his mother, he looks down from the cross and he says to his mother and to the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, that's John, he says to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he says to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. And so her mother role, having raised Jesus, extended to John and Mary being a type of the church, 
Mary being a type of the daughter of Zion that we read about in the Old Testament. All of these people, Deborah, Mary, Sarah, Hannah, there are many great mothers that are described in the Scripture. And a mother is given to a person, and a mother is given children in order that she might cause them to be raised in freedom. The title of the message this morning is An Allegory of Freedom, and that comes from Galatians chapter 4. So go with me over to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, and I'm going to read from verse 21. It's about two mothers. One is named Sarah, and the other is named Hagar. If I can find it. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 21. In Galatians 4, 21, we read, Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman, or the slave woman, and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking. For these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. I'm going to read on, but first I want to explain this to you. Notice that it says that Abraham had two sons, and one of his sons' names is Ishmael, and his second son's name is Isaac. And it says that Ishmael was born according to the flesh, but Isaac was born according to the promise. So we're not talking about something biological here. We're talking about something spiritual here, okay? Because if you're just talking biology, of course, they're both born according to the flesh, and you know how babies are born. One was born to Hagar, who was actually not Abraham's slave or servant, whatever word you want to choose there, but Hagar was the Egyptian slave of Sarah. And Sarah gave her to Abraham because Sarah was not able to bear children. And Abraham needed an heir, and God had promised him an heir. So when it says that he was born, Ishmael was born according to the flesh, it means according to the fleshly plans of men. That Abraham and Sarah, and Sarah in particular, concocted this plan to bring a child to Abraham that he would have an heir according to what God had promised him. Because Abraham was really rich. And you know, it doesn't do any good to be really rich and then die because you don't take any of it with you. You want to leave an inheritance for your children. He wants to leave an inheritance so Ishmael is born according to the flesh. But God did not bless that birth. Because that's not the way that God wanted to do it. God was going to bring a child to Abraham miraculously. It's not a miracle of the same level as the virgin birth, when Mary uh, is impregnated by the Spirit of God and brings forth Jesus without ever having known a man. But it is a miracle of a high order that a woman who is beyond the age that she could birth and a man who is almost 100 years old that they could suddenly have a baby when she's never been able to have a baby before. It's still a miracle, and it's a great miracle. And so God wanted to do this miracle and bring forth Isaac, and Isaac is born according to the Spirit. But what Paul is writing about in Galatians, he's writing about freedom in Christ. He's writing about not living under the law, but living in the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. And so he takes these two women by the Holy Spirit, because this is Scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit, 
and he brings them forth as an allegory. Now, an allegory is a, I'm just giving you the English definition of an allegory. It is a work of literature or art. Stop right there for a minute. And I want to tell you, every mother is a work of art. And I don't mean that in a sarcastic sense. Every mother is a picture. Every mother is an illustration. She is a work of literature to be read by her children. And they study her and they read her from the time that she is born. And she will be for them either an allegory of freedom or an allegory of slavery. So an allegory is a work of art or a work of literature. And now listen to this. This is the plain old English definition. Purposely designed to be interpreted with a hidden moral meaning. Purposely designed. Okay? So there's two forms of, uh, of uh, let's say, literature, for example. We could say it with art, but two forms of literature that we can learn something from. One form is called allegory, and another form is called story or history, right? And a life that is, or a, a work of literature that is history, it's not purposely designed to teach you a hidden moral meaning. You might get a hidden moral meaning out of it. You probably will if you apply it to your life, but it's just the absolutely true history, or it's supposed to be true history of someone else's life of what they've gone through, right? But an allegory is not a true story, okay? Uh, it's, a, it's a work of art that's purposely designed to teach a true story to someone else, okay? I'm not saying that Sarah is not a true story. I'm not saying that Hagar is not a true story. But what we're saying here is there's something more than just the uh, biological facts that we're dealing with. We're talking about God painted a spiritual picture for us. And God paints that picture in every woman. Let me just read on from this. So it says in verse 24 of chapter 4 of Galatians, this is allegorically speaking. For these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. The heavenly Jerusalem is our mother. The church, you would say, is our mother. We have a spiritual mother. We have a spiritual city. We have a spiritual home. A mother for her children is a home. She's not a house. They may change houses over and over again. But a mother is a child's home. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. So it is now also. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman, the, the allegory continues here, cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. So, an allegory is a work of, of art. 
It's purposely designed to be interpreted, to be interpreted by the one that looks at it, by the one that reads that, that work of art. And it's designed for them to get a hidden moral meaning out of it. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien of Lord of the Rings fame uh, wrote concerning allegory that allegory and story converge. So there's an allegory and then there's true history. They converge. They meet somewhere in truth. The only perfectly, just listen to this, the only perfectly consistent allegory is a real life. And the only fully intelligible story is an allegory. What I'm trying to say to you, if you can just think about that statement and what I've said about what an allegory is, is that, that the life of a mother is an allegory for her children, but it's her real life. To be real in front of your children, to show and express that love to them that God has put in your heart for them, because there's no such thing. I mean, yeah, maybe there's some crazy examples out there, but there's no such thing as a mother that does not love her children. But there is such a thing as a mother who does not know how to express that love or is afraid to express that love or is so preoccupied with the pressures and stress of life that she fails to express that love at times. And every single mother that's ever existed, the best of all and the best dads out there, do fail in many ways. All of us fail in many ways. Jesus even said, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your Father which is in heaven. So the most important part of the allegory, the thing that the children are supposed to read in your life, they read your real life story. But your real life story has a hidden moral meaning for them to learn from. I'm speaking from great experience because I want to tell you that when I was 32 years old, my mom passed away and she died way too young. She was younger than I am right now, okay? And completely unexpected. And when she died, I thought, you know, at the time when I knew she was sick and most likely was going to die, well, I'm an adult, everything's going to be okay. But I realized really soon, and I know way better now that I'm 58, that that, that is very young age to lose your mother. But as a pastor, I've noticed with people, it doesn't matter if they're 70 years old when their mom passes away. Something dies on the inside of them when their mom dies, Okay. And that thing that dies on the inside of them isn't even necessarily bad because a resurrection comes and they pass on that love that they had from their mother to, uh, to their children, to their grandchildren, to other people. And the love just keeps on going, okay? But as a parent, when we fail, what's so important for us is for us to be uh, uh, honest with our children and say we're sorry to them, you know, and, and make things right with them so that they can see inside of us Jesus. I mean, they're supposed to see God's love. They're supposed to see the heavenly Jerusalem in our hearts, because that's our real mother. They're supposed to see God's love in our hearts. And when they read that love in our lives, they, lead, they, they read that care in, in, in our lives, then that'll be reproduced in their lives. So we have two allegories here. And Hagar, the first one, she's an allegory of the law, it says. And she is, in the allegory, Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is where Moses received the Ten Commandments, where he received the law. 
And she corresponds to Jerusalem as it presently is. And I'm not talking about in 2023, although there would still be that, that sense there uh, today. But at the time that Galatians was written. When Galatians was written, the temple still stood in Jerusalem. When Galatians was written, we still have the same pharisaical structure that we read about in the Gospels during the time of Jesus. We have the same controlling law that we read about in the time of Jesus. We have the same lack of grace that we read about in the time of Jesus. And Paul says that that is Hagar, that that is slavery to the law. See, here's the thing. When you do not live according to the law, but you live according to love, you actually fulfill the law. Because love never breaks the law. Because love does not do evil to another person. So you don't even need the Ten Commandments if you love your neighbor as yourself. That's why Jesus said the two greatest commandments as to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. Because when you love God and you love your neighbor, then you don't need anybody to tell you don't commit murder. You don't need anybody to tell you don't commit adultery. You don't need anybody to tell you don't steal, don't do this. But the Ten Commandments are there to show us our sin and that we need a Savior. And so a mother shows that to her children. She shows in her life the reality of God's love and how that brought salvation to their home. But Hagar was a slave. And when a mother is a slave and has a slave mentality and serves as a slave, then she trains and raises her son or her daughter, her children, to be slaves also. And Hagar was an allegory of slavery, not an allegory of freedom. And as a result, Genesis 16:12 tells us that Ishmael became, and I quote, a wild donkey of a man. Ishmael's hand was against everyone, and everyone's hand was against Ishmael. Does anybody know any kids that grew up to be wild donkeys? That everyone's hand was against them, and their hand was against everyone. A kid that grows up and becomes an adult, and all his life, he never succeeds because he just keeps thinking nothing is fair, nothing's being given to me, nothing's being done to me, I'm entitled, I have a right. Well, we've got a whole country full of them. A whole country full of these kind of wild donkeys. And you could describe the United States of America today as a nation whose hand is against everyone. And everyone's hand is against it. I don't remember but a very brief period of my life that happened to come at that age when I was draftable. That we didn't have a war somewhere. So I got out of going to a war somewhere. But if I had been born a little bit earlier, or a little bit later, it would be almost impossible not to have to go to war somewhere. Either I would, or my brother would, or somebody very close to me in my family would. Because our hand is against everyone, and everyone's hand is against us. That's actually not a sign of freedom. That's a sign of slavery. When you can't make peace and you can't walk in love with other people, then you don't have success in life. 
You don't have success on the job. You don't have success in your family. Has there ever been a time in history when there have been so many divorces as we have today? And I'm not judging anybody. I'm just saying that's a result of the society that we live in. And the society is a result of how mothers raise their children, what they are an allegory of. And I could say that for dads, but today's Mother's Day. But Sarah, on the other hand, let's not focus too much on Hagar. She is an allegory of freedom. She is an allegory of the heavenly Jerusalem. She is an allegory of the bride of Christ. She is the first church of Isaac. She is an allegory of our mother who is above. And as a result, Isaac is not a wild donkey, but he's a child of promise. He is the one who inherits Christ's kingdom together with him. Go with me over to Genesis chapter 21. Genesis chapter 21. Genesis chapter 21. I'm just going to read verses 10 through 12. You can read the context for the whole story. Maybe some of you don't even know the story at all. Well, you've got to go back to Genesis and read it all. In Genesis chapter 21 and verse 9, let's look at verse 9. It says, Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking. Therefore she said to Abraham, who, who is he mocking? So Ishmael is mocking Isaac. Isaac's a little baby, and Ishmael is a 13-year-old, a teenager. And he's mocking his little brother. Now his little brother, biologically, is his half-brother, because they have different moms, but they have the same dad, Okay. But that biological difference stuff doesn't mean anything in the Bible. An, ado an adopted child, I mean, we are adopted by God. An adopted child is exactly on the same level as a birth child. And in fact, in the ancient customs and laws, maybe even a little bit higher, because you could kick your own birth child out of the house, but if you adopted somebody, you're stuck with them. Okay, it's like these Mustangs. But I've never adopted a Mustang, but as I understand, if you want to adopt a Mustang, then you're, you're stuck with that Mustang. You can't just, you know, turn it into the glue factory or something like that. You've got to take care of that thing because, you know, they're protected by, by, by law. So if you adopt a child, you know, so it's all in the same. So before God, there's Ishmael and there's Isaac, and they're both the sons of Abraham. And because Hagar was the servant of Sarah, Ishmael is also a part of, of Sarah's family. Okay? And this whole crazy plan was, was what Sarah concocted in the first place. So Ishmael, the teenager, is mocking the baby Isaac, his own brother. And therefore she said to Abraham, drive out this maid and her son. So he says, drive out this girl and her son. For the son of this girl, this maid, shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. That's what we read over there in Galatians. But listen to verse 11. The matter distressed. That's a really mild English translation of the Hebrew word. Abraham is really troubled by this. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. But God said to Abraham, you would think God would say to Abraham, do not do what Sarah said. That is terrible to kick Ishmael out of the house. But that's not what God said. God said to Abraham, because this is an allegory for us. God said to Abraham, do not, before I read this, none of you go home today and kick a kid out of the house because of this. This is an allegory. You're supposed to learn a moral message through this. But listen, there might be a kid you need to kick out of the house. It might be a neighbor kid. 
It might be a friend. You might need to change your kid's school. You might need to do something like that because this is pretty drastic. But God said to Abraham, do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. For through Isaac, your descendants shall be named. You don't have to raise your hand if you don't want to, but I'm going to raise mine. Maybe some of you husbands are experienced with this, that you do not agree with your wife, and you think what she's saying is just utter nonsense, and just stupid, and a bad plan, and you pray about it. It doesn't happen every day, but then God says to her, whatever she says to you, do it. And you're like, okay, fine. I'll raise my hand and say that God sometimes says that. And it's really from God. You know, Abraham can't figure this out. He's been raising this boy for 13 years. And Ishmael is a strong, handsome, tall, young man who's a good hunter. He's good at everything that, that Abraham loves. He's a good shepherd. He's good at taking care of everything. Abraham has been raising him on purpose to be the heir of everything that he owns. And now in one day, because he laughs and makes fun of baby Isaac, Sarah says, get him out of the house and get her out of the house. We're not going to have that influence on my son. I will not tolerate that that boy and my son become joint heirs of everything that you have. And God says, she's right. It needs to be done this way. Now, if you'll read the whole story, you'll know that God takes care of Ishmael too. And Ishmael and all his descendants are still blessed with vast wealth today, okay? God takes care of Ishmael too. God doesn't reject Ishmael. And he doesn't throw Hagar on, on the trash heap. But as a point of the allegory, what we're looking at here is Sarah as a mother. The child of Abraham's flesh persecutes the child of God's promise. And Sarah knows that she's an allegory of freedom for Isaac. She knows that. And so she purposes. Remember, an allegory is a story or a work of art purposely designed to be interpreted with a moral message. She purposes from the very beginning that this child will be raised by me in a way that he learns the message of God's freedom that he's a child of promise, that he's blessed, that he's the best, that I love him more than I love anybody. And I'm going to raise him in that way so that someday he's going to know that that's not even me that loves him that way, but it's God through me. And he'll be joined to God and he'll have that freedom and he'll have that confidence that only comes when you know that you are loved. And that you never have when you live according to the law. You know why you never get confidence according to the law? Because you fail every single day. You know, if you got your confidence in school based on your good grades, then I promise you that you don't have very much confidence today. Because you could have made straight A's, but then you went to college and found somebody way smarter than you. Because you're never going to be the best at anything. Okay? I mean, who's the best at something? Yeah, you might be the, the best this year, but you're not going to be the best next year. One injury is going to sideline you, or you're going to get old and retire, and everybody's going to forget your name, except old people going around with old baseball cards talking about things. Nobody's going to care anymore. We were just talking about the, the other day, I can't remember why, but somebody, somewhere we saw a high school ring, and, and I think Frank or 
I think it was Frank asked me, well, what's that for? You know, and I, I said, oh, well, this is like a tradition. When you graduate from high school, you get this ring kind of made with 10 karat gold and a little cheap stone, and it's got the name of your high school and everything. Did you get one, Dad? No, I never got one. Why? I said, because they're stupid. Sorry if you got one. Because my brother was a year older than me. And he said, don't be an idiot and waste money on that high school ring. As soon as you get to college, if you wear that thing, everybody's going to laugh at you. Because it doesn't matter anymore. Nobody cares about your high school anymore when you go to college, <laughs> you know? And, and, and so that's just how it is. Now, maybe it's a different Maybe you're all wearing high school rings. Don't get offended by me. But the point is that you're never going to remain the best at something. But, so the law does not instill confidence. The law laid down does not bring a person into freedom. Sometimes the law has to be laid down. The Bible says that whom God loves, these he disciplines. Okay? And it's a very wise and loving mother who disciplines her children and says we're not going to cross that line. But they have to know that that law is laid down because of the love and the direction that the family is going in. The law is not laid down because they can please God by keeping that law. Because you can't. Because you're going to fail. There's no way a mother can control every moment of every day of their child's life. It's impossible. And if you try to, well, what's going to happen when they leave home? They're not going to have you around anymore, and they're just going to become wild donkeys of men or women, whatever they are, because there's nobody tying them up to the post anymore. And so parenting is an exercise in ever-increasing freedom to bring a child that starts out with almost no freedom, but the goal is to get them to where there can be some freedom. I mean, it might be when they're two years old, you say, we got this color socks, this pair of socks, and this pair of socks. You can pick out which one you want. You don't give them anything to wear. You have to wear socks, or you have to do this. You know, but you can make a few choices here at this level where you're at. You know, and as you grow if you, and you prove yourself to be trustworthy, then you can be trusted with more and more and more. But the goal is to bring them into this freedom. So it starts for Sarah on the very first days of Isaac's life by saying, I'm going to remove and cut off the bad influence from my child's life. And that's going to go on and on and on until Isaac is 13 years old. And when Isaac's 13 years old, then God's going to say, now you're going to give that child to me. And you're going to bring him up on a mountain, and you're going to offer him as a sacrifice to me. And I can promise you, on that day, Sarah was dying in her heart. And Abraham was too. But he trusted God, and he let Isaac go. Because that's what it always was all about. Mothers are an allegory. An allegory serves a temporary purpose in a person's life. But the lesson and the love learned through that allegory stays with them forever. She knows that if Ishmael and Isaac share the inheritance, then the only inheritance they're going to get are tents and cattle in a land that doesn't even belong to Abraham, because Abraham doesn't even own an inch of property yet in this land. He will later, but not yet. And that's not much of an inheritance. She wants her son to inherit all the promises of God. If a child leaves home with this kind of freedom, as a child of promise, you can be from the poorest family on this planet. You can have absolutely nothing, but you are the richest child that ever left a home anywhere because 
You have it all on the inside of you. So Sarah, she goes to Abraham. She kind of mothers her own husband here too. And that, by the way, is important. She requires from Abraham that he separate her son from this wild donkey of a, of a boy, from this slavery, to drive them out. And God says, yes, drive them out. But I want you to listen to something. That sounds really cruel and it sounds really mean. But if you think about it, it's actually really cool. Because what Sarah actually does on that day, she gives Hagar her freedom. Hagar never had freedom before. She doesn't even want freedom. <laughs> she doesn't know what to do with it. She's going to go out in the desert and separate herself as, from one bow shot away from her son so she doesn't have to watch him die. And an angel's going to come and minister to them. They're all going to be saved. It's all going to work out really good for them. But Hagar doesn't want freedom. She wants Abraham. She doesn't want freedom. She wants Ishmael to have everything like any mother would want for her own child. And Sarah says it's not going to be that way. So she actually gives Hagar her freedom. She gives Ishmael his freedom. And she gives Abraham his freedom. Can you even imagine the kind of torment it was for Abraham 13 years to live with this Hagar and this Sarah together? I can't even imagine that. It would just be a nightmare. You know, people ask, well, how come men were allowed to have more than one wife in the Old Testament? And my question is, why would any man want more than one wife? That's absolutely insane. I mean, I can't imagine any peace in the home of Abraham. It would have been terrible. So Sarah actually makes a decision that gives Hagar her freedom, gives Ishmael his freedom, gives Abraham his freedom, and prepares a home where Isaac can be raised in freedom. I think one of the most important things that moms do is continually lead their children down a narrow way. Because this is weird, but the more narrow the way gets, the more freedom a person has. Matthew, we're speaking spiritually. Matthew 7, 13 and 14. The gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, Jesus said. So the way to slavery is a way where you have a thousand different choices and you have no, no idea what to do. You know, it, it, it used to be somehow people were happy with arranged marriages. No, we don't need to go back to arranged marriages. I'm not preaching that. But I'm saying when they had no choice, they were happy. You know, when they had no choice in their profession, they were happy in their profession. And people are miserable today. Because they live for 40 years and then their 58-year-old pastor and say, man, why didn't I join the Navy? That would have been a lot better. Man, I had, you know, I, I, I have a great pension now and all this. And you live your whole life thinking about all the choices you passed up. And that's, that's just a foolish way to live. The happiest people are the people that they just, as they say, bloom where they're planted. You are where you are. Make the best of it. And when a, when a mother instills that kind of freedom in a child, you know, that, Again, these trite little sayings, but the, the whole world is his oyster. He can go anywhere and prosper because he's got it on the inside of him. And we see that with Isaac. Do you know the story of Isaac? He's going out and he needs water. What do you need in the desert more than anything? Water, right? And he needs water. And there's these wells that Abraham dug. But every time that, uh, but after Abraham died, the Philistines came and filled them all up. 
with dirt, so he couldn't get water out of them. So he goes out and he digs it up again, turns his back, and the Philistines fill it up. Turn, digs another one, turns his back, the Philistines fill it up. And Abraham never gives up. I mean, Isaac never gives up. He doesn't even get discouraged. His name means laughter, and he's actually just filled with laughter all the time. One of the happiest marriages you can find in the Bible is Isaac and Rebekah. I mean, nothing is really written about any problems with them. There's not some other woman, there's not some this or that, all these problems that are throughout the Bible and throughout the real-life world. Isaac and Rebekah are just happy. And how does Isaac meet Rebekah? The bowling alley? He doesn't even... He's, Abraham sends a servant over there where his cousins live to find a woman suitable for Isaac and brings him back and says, that's who you're marrying, son. And he's like, okay, dad. He's good. And it's not because he's some kind of imbecile. It's because he's free on the inside. And that freedom comes from his mother. She is the allegory of freedom. So Jesus said, the gate is wide, the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many people who enter through that gate. Most people go that way. If you raise your children to be popular, you'll destroy their lives. If you raise your children to be like everybody other's child, their lives will be destroyed. I know no teenager in here wants to hear me say this, but I'm going to say it anyway, that if you think your kids need to have a smartphone because every kid has a smartphone, you're making a bad decision. Maybe they need a smartphone, but don't make that decision because every kid has a smartphone. If you think your kid needs a new car, and I don't really see that around Yarrington that much, but in Tulsa, Oklahoma, when I was growing up, when you got 16, a bunch of kids got these new cars, you know, really nice cars, cars that I would just love to have today, you know, and you're walking around drooling as you're driving the old family 72, what was that, Ford Country Squire station wagon <laughs> with everything hanging off of it, and your parents are like, hey, my parents are like, you ain't getting a new car, you're going to get all your smashing up fenders and all that done on these junk heaps. And then when you move out of the house, you can get your own new car. You go to college and your dad says to you, I paid my way through college, get on the work study program, get the scholarship, get this, and pay your own way through college if you want to go to college. $2,500 I had in the bank. That was a lot of money in 1980. And I saved up all that money from mowing yards. I worked hard for that money. And I saw this convertible Volkswagen bug that I wanted to buy. And it was $2,500. And I told my dad, I'm, I'm, I'm 17 years old. I'm buying that Volkswagen Bug when I was a senior in high school. I just so wanted one of those. I have no idea why. I hate those things now. But then I just really wanted one of those. And my dad, without blinking an eye, said, no, you're not. Every penny you've saved is going to go to your college. And I'm like, OK. But how thankful am I now that I actually went to college <laughs> instead of buying a stupid Volkswagen Bug that would have broke down the next day? A lot of my friends thought my dad and my mom were really strict. I thought that a lot of times. But later I realized, no, they were not strict. Strict, that's law. That's legalism. It looks like freedom, but it brings destruction. What they really wanted is for me to be free. They didn't want me to be stuck in the swamp of all those kids with the brand new cars. And I, I think my parents could have afforded that. I don't know for sure, but... They pretended like they could afford it. They had nice cars anyway. But we didn't. We got the old pieces of junk. But, you know, now I'm glad I learned to live with old pieces of junk because who can afford a brand new car today? Anyway. Anyway, so the gate is small, Jesus says, and the way is narrow that leads to life. 
and there are few people who find this freedom. I'm preaching this morning to encourage moms. Whatever mistakes you've made, however you feel like you've failed, just get on with it. Be an allegory of freedom to your children. You know, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12 one time when he was meeting with his disciples and one of them said, your mother and your brothers are here to see you. And Mary is right outside the door. And, you know, James, Jude, whoever, they're out there. And Jesus says, you know, my mother and my brothers are those who do the will of my father. These disciples are my mother and my brothers. You have this freedom where everything's not based on just blood relationships. That everything has to do with the connection we have through the heavenly mother, the heavenly Jerusalem, and our Father in heaven, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the presence of God, that Shekinah that I talked about, Shekinah that I talked about last week, this tabernacle of God in, in which we are a home, we are a family, and God has brought us together. And we can raise our children in freedom. You don't have to be a super Christian lady to learn how to do this. I mean, Sarah's pretty messed up, to be honest. She's the one that told Abraham to whatever with Hagar and have a baby with him. I mean, Abraham could have said to her, probably did, it's just not written in the Bible. This was all your idea in the first place. Why are you telling me now to kick him out? He's the only person in this family I actually like hanging out with. And she says, no, you get him out. Because Isaac is going to be the child of promise. And that was the best decision Abraham ever made, was to listen to his wife. Because he never would have been able to listen to God when God said, now give me your son, your only son, and dedicate him to me. Let's look at another uh, story. It's from 1 Samuel chapter 1. If you can open that, I'm just going to read a few verses out of chapter 1 and 2, but the whole story is in chapter 1 and 2, and if you've never read it, you should read it. And it's not really about Samuel. It is about Samuel, but the first two chapters actually focus on a certain woman, and her name is Hannah. And this is a woman who refuses to be anything or anyone less than a mother. Again, you might throw rocks at me or shoot me for saying this, but I'm just going to tell you, it's just a fact. It's just the truth that every girl is born biologically, emotionally, in every part of her life, she is born to become a woman, and a woman is destined to be a mother. And I'm not saying that in any way to make anybody feel bad who's not been able to have children or something like that, okay? Because I think I've already tried to show you that this motherly, this mother heart extends beyond just having a baby or two or three or four, okay? There are plenty of people in this world that need a mother, and even when your children are grown, even when they're gone, being a grandmother is still a mother. Being a mother and a grandmother for other children. And being a mother of Israel is what we started with. Do you remember Deborah said, until I, until I, Deborah, a mother of Israel, arose. We need mothers of Israel. Mothers that are the covering of the church and that are an allegory of freedom for us. So we've got Hannah. That's just a little disclaimer there, okay? But we've got Hannah, and Hannah can't have a baby. And she really wants to have a baby, and her husband's name is Elkanah, 
And he really loves her, but since she can't have a baby, he's got another wife that can have babies, okay? So she's not a very happy woman. She lives in a house. She's like uh, Rachel was with Leah, if you know the story of Jacob. And the, the other lady, she can have babies. <laughs> and she can't have a baby at all. And she's getting old. And, you know, everything's about to end for her. So she goes to the temple. She goes up to the temple. And she's praying to God. And she's praying and she's praying. And she's on the steps of the temple. It'd be like somebody's up here on the altar. And Eli, the priest, is doing his ministry. And he's looking at this crazy lady down here praying. Because when she's praying, her mouth is moving, but no sound is coming out. Because she's crying out from her heart, but no sound is coming out of her lips. So he walks over to her and says, go home, you drunkard. He thinks she's drunk. It's just like in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit comes on them. Everyone thinks they are drunk. He thinks she's drunk. That's how, how, how in the Spirit she is here. She's acting like a drunk lady. And so he says, get out of here and go home. You can't be drunk in the house of God. And she says to him, I'm not drunk, but I'm praying to God. And she said, I'm asking for a son. She specifically asks for a son. She on purpose prays to God with this definite purpose. Look with the uh, chapter 1, verse 11. It says, she made a vow while she was there. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of my life, of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. That's the vow of a Nazarite, like Samson. You know, so if you've ever seen a picture of Samuel and he had a cute little goatee or something, that's wrong. Samuel had a wild, crazy beard. Samuel had long hair, okay, because a razor never touched his head. It's the vow of a Nazarite. And she says to God, before she's ever got pregnant, before she's even able to get pregnant, you know, physically she cannot have a baby. Her womb is closed, as it says in Scripture. And she prays to God and says, if you will just hear me. First of all, notice that she calls herself a maidservant. She says, I'm your servant, God. And whatever is your will for my life, that's what I'm going to accept, and I'm going to take that. But... I want you to know I believe it's your will, your will for me to have a son because I'm a woman and I'm going to have a baby. And so I'm asking you, if you'll give me a son, if you'll do it, she's making a bargain with God. It's called intercession. And she says, if you'll give me a son, then I will give him back to you. And a razor shall never touch his head. I will put him under the vow of a Nazarite. And I tell you, God, I will raise him in a way that he will fulfill that vow. And if you know the life of Samuel, the, the books are named after him. He's the greatest of all the judges and the first of all the major prophets in the Old Testament, the one who anoints King David. So Hannah's vow is fulfilled, okay? Not because Samuel is who Samuel is, not because Samuel is so great, but because Hannah's faith is so great. She's the mother in the shadows. She's the one that you forget about as you go through all the stories of the Old Testament. But she's there in two chapters so that you'll know that all of this happens because of the faith of this mom. And she says, I'll give him back to you. And a razor shall never touch his head. Then look at verse 27. You can read there the whole story about her supposedly being drunk and all that stuff. And in verse 27, she says, 
um, for this, when she, after Samuel is born, and uh, they come back up to the temple, and Eli sees her there, then she says in verse 27, she's got the little baby, she says, for this baby, for this boy, I prayed, and the Lord has given me my petition, which I asked of him. So I have also dedicated him to the Lord as long as he lives. He is dedicated to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. Now look with me at um, verse uh, 21. Verse 21. Verse 21, it says, Then the man Elkanah went up with all his household to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, I will not go up until the child is weaned. Then I will bring him that he may appear before the Lord and stay there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Remain until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord confirm his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. Now, if you don't read that carefully, you're going to miss what it's saying. Because what it's saying is really, really powerful. We see the purpose of Hannah's heart. Remember, an allegory is something made on purpose. She purposed in her heart to ask God for a son, and that if you give me this son, then I'm going to dedicate him to you. And now her husband Elkanah, see Elkanah is like Abraham, and Abraham and Elkanah, they're like Joseph for Mary and Jesus also. Elkanah doesn't really get the whole thing. And I promise you moms, we husbands, fathers, you don't get some things that we know, but we don't get the whole mother thing sometimes. And, and you don't need to get too stressed out about that. Your husband might not even be a Christian, but he loves you and he loves the kids. You know, the Bible promises you that you will sanctify him. He will come to Christ. You will actually mother your own husband too. Sarah does that for Abraham because all us guys, I promise you, we're still boys. <laughs> and sometimes you mother your own husband. Sarah tells Abraham what to do and Abraham listens. Hannah tells Elkanah what she thinks about this. Because here's what Elkanah does, and this is a guy thing. Okay, we asked God for a baby. You got the baby. You say he's gonna, you're going to dedicate him to the Lord. Let's take him up there to the temple, or at this time the tabernacle, and give him over to the Lord now. And she says, no, I'm not even going to go up there with you. I'm not going up there until after I wean him first. Because she knows that to... Listen to this. In order to dedicate, really dedicate him to the Lord, those first years are the most important years. They cannot, they will never come back again. You may be able to wait for something, but kids never wait because they grow up. And while you're just waiting for something to happen, they're already grown up and it's over. Never pass up the opportunity to be an allegory of freedom. Never pass up the opportunity to pour into the life of your children. You know, that's why it says in the Old Testament that you should be talking to them about these statutes, about the Word of God, sharing God's love with them, not in church on Sunday. That's just, you know, the cherry on top of the Sunday. That was a pun on accident. But that you should be talking with them as you walk, as you go around, as you're doing stuff, you're cleaning house, you go on a camping trip, I don't know, you're getting them ready for school, whatever it is you're doing, that you just fill up every moment of their lives with this love, okay? So she says, no, these first years are the most important years. And I must be, before I can release him to the Lord, I have to be the allegory of freedom. 
I have to be his first true love before he can know the love of God. I have to be his God in the flesh, the only God that he's going to know, and then I can turn him over to the one true God who shines through my heart to him. So first, I have to give him my mother's milk. I have to wean him. Now, I want you to understand something. Most of you that are of an old enough age, you know this, but weaning doesn't have anything to do with a baby bottle. It has to do with breast, right? Okay, it has to do with giving from the inside of yourself. And it's an allegory. It's a picture of spiritual love, pouring that into the hearts. You know, milk is an allegory or a picture in the scripture of teaching, teaching the child from your own heart, okay? And in Old Testament times, as in times up until most recently of our modern times, a child was not weaned when he was six months old. They didn't have Gerber baby food bottles and stuff like that. This child would have been on his mother's milk for up to five years. I mean, this is a preschool child, okay? I know some of you younger ones are like, oh, gross. But I've actually seen that in my life, okay? But it's how things used to be, okay? This child would have been talking and still drinking his mother's milk. So she keeps him at home in those preschool years. That's what I want you to see. She keeps him close to her in those preschool years. She doesn't send him to daycare. She won't even take him to the church yet. Okay? At least the big big church over there in, in Shiloh where the tabernacle is set up. She won't take him to dedicate him to the Lord because he's still a preschool child. So she purposes to be this first image of God, this allegory of freedom for him in those early years. Then look at chapter 2, verse 11, when she does finally take him up to the temple. Uh, Oh, and by the way, I I wanted to point out that Elkanah doesn't really understand that. And that's why he says to her, okay, fine, have it your way, but let's just see if God confirms this or not. Well, God did confirm it, but Elkanah didn't know yet. Now remember that Elkanah and Hannah, they don't really have a good relationship. Okay? He's he's got another wife. He's got a bunch more kids, and this one she's going to give up. I don't think they had a lot of romance in their family or a lot of love in their family, but this is pretty cool. Look at verse 11. It says, Then Elkanah went to his home at Ramah, but the boy ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. So if you read the whole story, what this is saying is this is like Mary did with Joseph when he was lost in the temple. That she hid those words in her heart and she just decided to trust Jesus with this. So Hannah finally brings him up to the temple. He's five years old. Now Elkanah wants to keep him because he's already five years old. And Hannah says, no, we're going to leave him here. And she convinces Elkanah to go on home to Ramah and leave his five-year-old son in the temple to be this, this you know, like monk, you know, living uh, with his whole life dedicated to the Lord. It, it's, it's like he left his kid at the Catholic boarding school or something in a far distant state, you know. And that's what Elkanah convinces him to do. And he listens to her. But look at verse 18. In verse 18, it says, Now Samuel was ministering before the Lord as a boy wearing a linen ephod. That means he was in a priestly service as worshiping the Lord. And his mother would make him a little robe. Anybody remember this story? Anybody go to Sunday school? Raise your hand if you went to Sunday school. Anybody remember this story in Sunday school? It was always in the Sunday school stories with this picture of this little robe. I always loved that story because I'm telling you the truth. My mom was like that. They made little clothes for us. My grandma sewed for me these pants 
that were supposed to be really groovy. This is the 70s. They had bell bottoms, and they had stripes going all the way down them. And they didn't have a button or a zipper. They had an elastic waistband on them. I had to wear those things to school. I hated those. I hated them because, once again, it was the copy of the cool thing that everybody was wearing. But mine wasn't the real one. Mine was the one Grandma made. But I had to wear them to school. You know why? Because Grandma made these for you. You will wear these to school. And I just complained, but I did it. I did it. You know why? Because the truth is I was being raised in freedom, raised to respect my Grandma, raised to respect my mom, my dad. So she brings him little clothes to wear. She comes up there with these clothes, and uh, he, uh, when, you, when you read, it, it, it's kind of weird because it says he's wearing a linen ephod, so he didn't really need the clothes, but his mom made them for him. She would make him a little robe and bring it to him from year to year. So every year she makes him clothes and brings it to him. And when she would come up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice, so how often does she see her son? One time a year. One time a year. Okay? Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children from this woman in place of the one she dedicated to the Lord. And they went to their own home. And the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew before the Lord. So Hannah, this is miraculous also, has six children, even though she was already almost at the age where she couldn't have any kids anymore at all. And God restored the love in their marriage. God restores their home because of Hannah's dedication. God honors the dedication of Hannah. And the dedication that she has to give everything over to God brings great freedom again. What I'm trying to say is this. When you're an allegory of freedom for those kids, you bring blessing to the whole home. You bring blessing to your husband. You bring blessing to the whole church. You bring blessing to your whole family because of your dedication to be the mother that God has called you to be. I know that this is 2023 and you're not supposed to say anything like this anymore, and, but I'm, it doesn't change the truth. The truth still is that there's no higher calling on earth than to be a mother and to be an allegory of freedom for a child, for that child to walk into that freedom. It brings not slavery to the mom. Today we have an attitude that moms are slaves. If, a, if there happens to be a woman that can stay at home and raise her children, and that's pretty rare because it is financially very difficult to do these days because that's the slave society that we've created. But if there happens to be a woman who makes a choice to stay at home and raise her children, everybody thinks she's nuts today. You know, when my generation were kids, everybody thought you, the woman was nuts if she had a job and didn't raise her kids. Now everything's changed around. But that doesn't change the truth that there is no greater calling and there's no greater reward. Each one of these women find riches in their own house. They prosper. They're blessed. And they have uh, big families. And God blesses them. You know, I can promise you that having more kids doesn't mean you're more impoverished. I know everybody thinks that. But it's a complete lie. I've got children who are married. Hopefully they're not listening to this so I, they don't get on to me for saying this. Children who are married who say, no, Dad, we're not ready to have a kid yet because we don't have this and we don't have that. And I'm like, you're making way more money than I make and way, way, way more money than I made when I had my first son. 
It's just not true. It's just, it's just a lie. The greatest calling is to be a mother. There's nobody that, that, if, that I, I could tell you there's not one single human being on, on this earth that had more influence on my life as far as freedom in Christ Jesus that I have, whatever limited freedom I have in Christ Jesus, however I'm walking in that, it's all because of my mom. 100%. Because she was that allegory of freedom for me. So let me just end by reading some Bible verses to you. I'm just going to read them to you. And this is kind of like 11 commandments instead of 10. But it's not about walking according to the law. This is about freedom. And these things I want to say to every child in here. Every person in here who has a mom, no matter how old you are, and whether your mother is alive on earth or not, there are things here that apply to you. What does a child owe his mother? Every child owes his mother. And freedom is a two-way street. Okay? If your mom, if you want, if you, if you think, well, my mom isn't much of an allegory of freedom, maybe you're not very good at receiving from her what she's giving to you either. It takes faith on the part of the child. It takes obedience on the part of the child. Cooperation together with mom for these things to work. So what, I'm going to start with what does a child owe to his mother? The first thing is a child owes his mother obedience. The second thing is a child owes his mother honor. And it says in the scripture, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. So everything I've been talking about this morning. When you hear children obey your parents, your thought as a child is, that's not fair. Or I'll obey them while they're watching, but wait till their back is turned. You know, I, I'm not so old that I forgot what it was like to be a kid. And there was a reason why my mom said over and over again a thousand times, I got eyes in the back of my head. And I actually thought she did for a long time. <laughs> and I believed there was a little bluebird. I did. Did anybody have that? My dad would come home, sit at the table, and say, a little bluebird told me today, Kevin Neal, that you did this and that. I really believed a little bluebird flew to his window at office and told him <laughs> what we were doing. But children, obey your parents. But here's the thing I didn't really get until I started getting older. That obedience is, is simply... A, a pathway to honor, okay? It's just a pathway to honor. And honor brings blessing to me. When I honor my parents, and you don't stop honoring your parents because they're dead. You keep honoring your parents. Your life is an honor to your parents. When we honor our parents, when we honor our grandparents, we honor ourselves, and we walk as children of the promise. I would say that of everything in this message today, that's the most important. Because if there's one thing you can do today to set yourself free in Christ, it would be to honor your parents. If there's some reason you've been bearing a grudge against them, if there's something that you think that they've done that's not fair in how they raised you, then just drop that at Jesus' feet and start speaking honor and blessing over them. The next thing that a child owes his mother is a blessing. 
Proverbs 30.11 says, There is a kind of man who curses his father and does not bless his mother. And the point of the verse is, there are those kinds of people on the earth, but you should not be that kind of person. Blessing. The fourth thing is respect. Leviticus 19.3 says, Every one of you shall reverence his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. So giving respect to your mother, respecting your mother is as important to God as keeping his Sabbaths. And if you don't know how important that is, boy, it's pretty important. Read in the Old Testament. They went into, into bondage for 70 years because they had refused to keep his Sabbaths for 490 years. And God said, you're going to pay for that. The land is going to get its rest anyway. Well, it's the same way. We live in bondage because we don't respect our own parents. And I'm talk not talking to teenagers now. I'm talking to grown-up adults that don't respect their own parents because they found some reason not to respect them. Well, every single one of these people in the Bible, except maybe Isaac and Rebecca and Joseph thrown there and Jesus, but there's hardly any examples in the Bible of someone that doesn't give you a reason to not respect them. Everybody in here, there's a reason not to respect them. Okay? But you respect by faith. You respect out of love. You respect out of gratitude. And if you can't find anything to be grateful for, thank God that they didn't abort you that they brought you onto this planet. Don't fall into the hole that Job almost fell into when he said, I wish to God that my mother would have miscarried me. I wish she would have aborted me. I wish I had never been born. I mean, that's the end of the rope of despair. You're almost gone at that point. Don't let yourself get to that point. So I'm telling you, I'm telling you something big. It'll set you free just to thank God for your parents. Say, I thank you, God, for my parents. So we owe them obedience we owe them honor we owe them blessing we owe them respect and here's one maybe you've never thought of we owe a mother that we would mourn for her in her death people today they've forgotten how important it is to go to a graveyard put some flowers down and show some respect because we're such christians we think that that doesn't matter anymore well i got to tell you a secret they're going to raise from the dead, and that's the spot they're going to come out. You know, Jesus came out of that tomb where he was buried. The Bible says in Psalm 35, 14, I went about as though it were my friend or brother. I bowed down mourning as one who sorrows for a mother. Every one of my kids, a bunch of my grandkids, I don't think I've got them all there yet, have all been to graves all over Oklahoma and Kansas, where all these Websters and different people are dead. And I know it's boring for them. But I don't care. They're going to learn where these graves are. They're going to show respect to these people because if it was not for them and the sacrifices they made, there would not be us. And there's going to come a day when they will care. I know because I didn't care anything about that until my parents died. And then suddenly I realized, wow, they're gone. And heaven's that much closer to me. It's a scriptural principle. It's something that you would never even had to talk to people about in generations before. But today, we need to hear that. We owe that to mourn her in her death. So what is a child obliged not to do to his mother? Listen to these carefully. They sound like, why do you even have to say them? That they're important. Six things. Do not strike your mother. 
Does that sound like a good principle? You don't, you'd be surprised how many women are beaten, not by husbands, but by children. You can take these things in the direct sense, and you can take them in a spiritual sense. Exodus 21.15, He who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Now, nobody's going to put you to death because you hit your mom. God didn't kill Adam and Eve the day they ate the fruit, but death came into them. The moment you raise your hand to strike your father or your mother, you cross a line that brings death into your own life. And it may not be a physical punch, it may be a spiritual punch. Do not strike your mother. Keep your hands to yourself. Do not steal from your mother. Proverbs 28, 24. He who robs his father or his mother and says it is not a transgression is the companion of a man who destroys. I remember this, being a little boy and stealing some quarters off of my dad's dresser because he had a whole bunch of quarters there. He'd never know. And saying to myself, there's nothing wrong with that. It's our family's quarters. And I sold those quarters because I wanted to get some ice cream or something. I have no idea what. And then I, I literally remember, because we were doing this read through the Proverbs thing, reading that, and, ah! like, I have committed the unpardonable sin, you know, but it says that you're, you're then the, the uh, companion of a destroyer. Why? Because you're destroying your own house. How stupid is that? Just ask your parents for the quarters. You know, you're destroying your own house, so it's stupid. So don't steal from your parents. I'm talking not to kids and teenagers. I'm talking to grown-ups who still steal from their own parents, spiritually, materially, in many ways. The next one is, do not drive your mother away. That means push her away from yourself. I don't mean drive her somewhere to the store in a car. <laughs> Proverbs 19.26 says, He who assaults his father and drives his mother away is a shameful and a disgraceful son. Don't push your mama away. Don't hit your mom. Don't steal from your mom. And don't push her away when she's trying to love you. I, I know that maybe she's just driving you nuts. But don't push her away. Let her be mom, and you're going to get way more out of what God wants to do for you. Because everything she's doing, I promise you, she's doing it for you. Okay. Number four, do not bring shame on your mother. In Leviticus 18.7, it says, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father. That is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You are not to uncover her nakedness. Proverbs 29.15, it says, A child who gets his own way brings shame on his mother. So, mothers, if you don't want shame brought on your household, don't let your children have their own way. And children, if you want to be blessed... Don't uncover the nakedness of your mother. And yes, that has some very plain stated things in the law that are related actually to uh, incest, but that's not the only meaning of it. To uncover someone's nakedness is what, in Oklahoma anyway, we said hanging out their dirty laundry. It's to show somebody naked in front of the world. Don't talk bad about your parents when you're with other people. It's, it's, it's actually, have you ever been with somebody who's talking bad about their parents 
or about their dad or their mom, and you're just feeling on the inside that, oh, cringy. Like, God, just stop it. You're making yourself look bad. You're making yourself look bad. There may be a thousand evil things to say about your parents. I don't know. And maybe there's a whole lot of stuff you need to talk to them about face to face. But when you walk out of that house, you do not uncover their nakedness because you're uncovering not only your mother's nakedness, but your father's nakedness and the nakedness of your whole family. And it like, turns out like one of those dreams where you go to school in your underwear. And it's just it's like you can't find clothes. You can't get them on because once all that stuff is said, nobody forgets it. Nobody forgets it anymore. So you honor your parents. You don't uncover their nakedness. The next one is do not ridicule your mom. Don't make fun of her. Don't poke fun at her. Deuteronomy 27, 16 says, Cursed is he who dishonors his father or his mother. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Because every time you ridicule your parents, every time you curse your parents, everybody around you thinks you're the one that's cursed. Nobody should talk about their own parents that way. And the last one is do not forsake your mother's teaching. Remember the weaning, the mother's milk, those first years of life? There's something put in you by your mother. Proverbs 1.8 says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. My mom told me, I kind of wish she hadn't because I would have had more fun on motorcycles, but she told me you're never going to ride a motorcycle street bikes she meant because they're so dangerous and uncle steve that's her brother has had so many wrecks which was true so many times in the hospital you're never going to ride a motorcycle and i did ride motorcycles and every time i was on a motorcycle i'd hear mom say you're never going to ride a motorcycle and i could never have fun on that motorcycle never once a few years ago i was in kansas city with kevin mcmullen and pastor and he rides motorcycles he's really good he's like jerry jerry motorcycles and those side-by-sides and everything and stuff and so Kevin has these gold wing whatever's you know these huge motorcycles he goes, you want to go on a motorcycle ride and I go yeah let's go so he's on one I'm on one and we're driving around town and I'm scared the entire time I and mean, I'm scared witless like I'm gonna die and I can just hear my mom saying and I'm 50 something never ride a motorcycle we get back to this house safe and sound and, and I, I said, I'm never doing that again. And I meant it. Never again am I going to get on a motorcycle. I've made it this far in life just by pure luck. <laughs> but somehow I survived this motorcycle ride, you know, because mom said, don't ride a motorcycle. That may sound stupid, but do you know, maybe there was a reason she said that. I'm a pretty clumsy guy. Maybe she knew. Kevin needs to hear, don't ride a motorcycle. Okay, and because I am, I'm really clumsy. And, and there was these guys in the Old Testament. Tanya loves this story. It's, it's a great story. And their dad said to them, never drink wine. Never drink wine. That was it. Okay, everybody drinks wine, but not these guys. Never drink wine. And so the, the prophet comes to them, and he tells them, put some wine in front of them, and says, you need to drink some wine. And they say, no. And he says, why? And they said, because dad said, don't drink wine. Dad said, don't drink wine. We're not drinking wine. Not because it's a sin, not because it's bad for your health or all these other reasons, but just because dad said, don't drink wine. And the prophet uses that as an example of what obedience should be like in the house of Israel. That we don't obey because we understand. We obey because dad said so. That's what our father God says. 
And mom, she's the first image of our Father God that a child ever has, more so than dad. Dad's the image that comes along later. You know that when Jewish children were raised, if you study history during the time of Jesus, the way Jesus would have been raised, they would go to the, you know, like the synagogue school. They would learn the reading, all this stuff and everything. That would come uh, together with learning an occupation from their father as an apprentice. And all that began after they were weaned. But during that time, those early years when they are being weaned, when they're still on their mother's milk, the preschool years, the dad had almost nothing to do with them. I mean, not that he ignored them or anything, but there was nothing for him to do. You know, I can't, I can't give him any milk. There aren't diapers to change back then. There's lots of things for daddies to do now because we've got bottles and diapers and you know, all these super dad things and, and car seats to put them in, all things that dads have to do. But what dad was supposed to do then was feed the family. Okay, And so it, it, everything's changed. I know that. But what I'm saying is the spiritual principle is the same. Mom is the first image of God that that child ever knows. And so there's nothing more important. There's no higher calling than being a mother. So be an allegory of freedom. We hope you enjoyed the children. message. Before you Stand leave, we want to remind you that if you want to continue receiving We're going to updates do... on new sermons, that you subscribe to our podcast. If you want more information on how to contact us, make sure to check out our website at urringtonvillianfellowship.com. And we'll see you next time on the YBF Podcast.